Hello and welcome to Geeks with Shields, your home for all things good and nerdy in this, the darkest timeline. I'm Lord Commander Ulrich. And I'm a shield brother, Axel Wright. How are you doing today, Axel? I'm doing pretty well. All right, good to hear, good to hear. All right, on today's episode, we'll be talking about some of our favorite games that we played this year, why we love them, as well as talking about a few upcoming titles of 2018 that we are really looking forward to and we hope don't end up like Battlefield 2. <sighs> Yeah, I think you mean Battlefront too, but I get what yeah, I get what you were saying. The, so. Just so excited, followed by crippling, crippling disappointment. Yeah, Battlefront too, because Battlefield two I think was actually just fine for its series, but that's nitpicking. Go on. <laughs> and as always, we'll be giving you our suggestions of the week. So, Axel, what was one of your most played games this year? Uh, well, if you're giving me first run, I'm going to have to say For Honor, which I didn't actually think was a this year game because it was in beta actually like in 2016, but the official launch date was early uh, 2017. So it yeah, counts. February, wasn't it? Uh, something like that. I don't know the exact date. It was date. an early, early release. Yeah, and I didn't get into it immediately. I actually, I didn't. I wasn't interested in it, but that's just because I, I'm not really a fan of competitive games in general. But a friend of mine who I play most of my games with online, uh, Wretched, who we'll bring on here eventually to talk about his love of the chaos in Warhammer 40k, uh, he just bought it for me like out of nowhere. And I was like, well, he spent the money, so I, <laughs> I better get into it. And Might as well play it. I know this is a highly controversial game. Some people love it. Some people hate it. I told one of my brothers that we'd be talking about this, and he jokingly said he'd be unsubscribing. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, here's, here's the thing about criticisms that I totally understand. When, when the game first came out, in a lot of ways, it was broken. Now, admittedly, I, didn't even, I wasn't even into it at the time. So I came in later and then was told about this kind of stuff. Like, my, uh, my real-life brother, um, he said that he played it the first week it came out, and he thought that guard-breaking, which is a mechanic in the game where you can basically make the opponent um, open to a follow-up attack. It's kind of like a grab in a fighting game. Uh, but he said that guard-breaking was busted because you could just keep guard-breaking someone over and over again. And I didn't understand that because learning how to counter guard-break where you press one button and their grab doesn't work was the f like first thing I learned how to do. <laughs> so I just so I wasn't there for this kind of stuff. But uh, more importantly, there, there was a thing in the game called unlock tech where it was literal, literally a glitch, where under certain circumstances, you could do an attack that was impossible to block. And when they had their first like official tournament, the guy who won, won using this. And that finally, after that, there were all these things kind of like that, that were uh, glitchy or game break. They, had, they didn't have dedicated servers. Yeah, I was going to so... say, I know server issues were a big issue at launch, and that turned a lot of people away. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of stuff, too, which I haven't dealt with. I mean, I've had a few nights where things can get like particularly weird. I know but... they've moved to dedicated servers now, which 2017, why do you not have dedicated servers for an online game if because... it's... <laughs> Because it's if that is your whole, I guess, but if that is your whole thing is this is an online game with dedicated multiplayer and people are playing on, you need to have a dedicated server that can handle the strain because this game almost died right out of the gate. I know it's bounced back through a lot of uh, tweaking and reworking and dedicated servers. 
Yeah, and uh, like I said, they've they've balanced a lot of what has been wrong with it. There are still a few balance issues. Like there are at least two characters that are in the absolute garbage tier for reasons that suck. Like my my friend who bought me the game, he mains Conqueror, which is a guy who is a knight with a shield and a flail, and he's supposed to be a heavy character, but he has no hyper armor, he has no unblockables, and he can't faint. Which I know that's probably all Greek to you, but uh, the most important one of those is fainting. The idea of in the game you can start an attack and then cancel it, which makes your opponent like think you're change attacked. their guard. I've yeah. played it a little bit. I have played the game. I picked it up on Black Friday for ten dollars to play it and try it out and see if it was something I wanted to buy on Steam to play with you. And I wasn't very impressed for a couple reasons. And maybe this will be the deciding factor between the two of us of what made it for you over what didn't make it for me. And well, hold on, before you get into that, let me just finish what I was saying. Oh, okay. yeah. Sorry, sorry to cut you off. Yeah, it's okay. But um, so the Conqueror is a character who is just broken. Like, he does not have the base mechanics that other characters have to make them better, and they haven't fixed him yet. Uh, the Kensei, who's basically the samurai intro character, is similarly garbage tier. On the other hand, the uh, most recent character they added, the Shaman, uh, they've had to nerf her like three patches in a row, because, and she's still like broken. So yeah, they've got some balance issues to deal with, but on the whole, I think they have been working in the right direction. Like Some characters have been pretty well balanced since the beginning like the warden and the warlord have been i mean okay i'm a bias because i love warlord and warlord was some people said like absolutely but he's a the viking with a sword and shield and people said that he was busted for a long time when really it wasn't that he was busted he just was good at doing everything he had no overt weaknesses but anyway besides the point uh point is that there are plenty of characters that i think are different diverse enough to to make an interesting player experience especially if they deal with glitches things like unlock tech and uh you know when i got in i was like i gotta play vikings because it's my thing right and yeah yeah sure the the hema part of me recognizes that yeah the raider is dumb because he goes into battle wearing no armor and that's gonna get him killed this is off so, man this is a game where vikings fight samurais fighting knights dumb doesn't apply here exactly but well an important distinction someone brought up to me is there's a difference between being realistic and being accurate. Yes. And, and for the most part, I feel like for honor has realistic fighting, not accurate fighting. Cause yeah, people will do spins and that would get you killed in reality. And the Vikings mostly don't wear armor. The only Viking that actually is like what real Vikings would look like is the warlords. Partly why I play them a lot. So, uh, but yeah, I, I play it mostly like I'm not in like I said I'm not in a competition game so I don't really care about like getting my rank up or or anything like that. I'm I play it as a social game. So like I will just 1v1 with my friends all the time and we're laughing and having a good time all the while we're getting a little bit better so that every now and then we can go and play against like other people as a team and not get destroyed. It's just like a like I would not recommend I think one of the reasons why for instance your experience with it probably wasn't great is simply because I told you to get it to play it with me, and playing with me is going to be a very different experience than playing on your own. Yeah, actually I never got into the multiplayer because I wanted to try out the campaign and get a feel for the game, and I'm still mad that the campaign was so poor, I guess. No, I, I totally agree. It's it, very rinse and repeat. 
No, you're completely right. But I, I've put 150 hours into it so far, and even if I did spend full money on it, that's more than I spend on a, more time than I spend on a lot of games. So I, I'll tell you now that if I see it go on sale on Steam, I will buy it for you, and you <laughs> have to play it with me. So uh, the other thing that really kind of turned me off, and this may change if I get more into it, was I wasn't a big fan of the combat system to the extent that the blocking system to me felt a lot like Simon Says in where you're trying to match your opponent and if you screw up, you die. Well, that's partially true, but that's like where things like fainting and other techniques come in to to make that game more complex and i'm fine with that that's a good level of complexity but what i really and that's fine have that but what i really kind of broke me on the game and didn't work that was pitched so much in the lead up to was you were going to have you were going you and like five friends were going to be generals for massive hordes of enemies and you were just going to spend your time slicing through bots and fighting that and occasionally running into an opponent yeah, no, no. No, and the game is 100% different, and I don't like that. I mean, you and I, we both grew up playing big games with tons of bots to fill it out and flush it out. There were nothing but cannon fodder that made you feel like a god. And I'm like you. I'm not big into competitive games. I'm really not a fighting game guy. And that was kind of why I couldn't get into For Honor was it's like I loved going around, cutting down all these people doing these cool combos, but then the game for me kind of screeched to a halt when I had to stop for 10 minutes to 1v1 a guy. It took me out of the game. And when I found out that that's all multiplayer is, I kind of lost interest. And you know what? I think that's perfectly fine. But I, I will end my my uh, section on this by saying that like, I think of it as a social game. And when you like, I don't play it on my own. Uh, and I think if you think about it that way, and when I get it for you and you play it with me, you'll have a different experience. Not the one that you wanted from the game that was apparently pitched to you, but a different one that I think is enjoyable. So, Well, maybe that'll be the case. Because, I mean, it's a great concept, and there actually is one of my, we'll talk about later, my games I'm excited for next year is a Ubisoft production that has a lot of the same vibes as For Honor. But sure. we'll get to that when we get to that. All right. Also, also, I just want to add that Ubisoft has a history of uh, really screwing up. Like, so that—that's what I meant when I said that because it's Ubisoft. That's yeah, why. they have a history of poor launches, and I don't know why they haven't learned. Yeah, but the For Honor team has been very receptive to the community, with a few notable exceptions. They just released a mask that was terrible, then took a poll on how they should fix it, then ignored the poll, and I'm super mad about that. But that's a whole other <laughs> conversation. So, um. But talking about terrible launches, for me, it was XCOM 2 and then its expansion, XCOM 2, War of the Chosen. And when I say terrible launches, I'm referring to the fact that the company completely ignored their console fans. You could not play XCOM 2 on anything but PC for a year. Okay. And the companies came out and said... Well, we just aren't sure we want to promote it on consoles, which is the most PC Master Race bullshit I have ever heard. I will say that as a Bloodborne fan, I feel your pain. So, And it's even stupider because they made so much money and really revived this franchise by releasing the first XCOM across all platforms at the same time. 
So when it was announced it was coming to console, I was super excited. And then they announced War of the Chosen, which is technically an expansion, mm -hmm. but if you have it or have played it, it's a whole other game. It just rebuilds the game from the ground up. And they announced it will be on all consoles on my birthday. It was going to release all consoles on my birthday. I was super excited. I'd taken time off work for my birthday and played this game. I had pre-ordered it. I got on to play. I had it downloaded. I went to play, and it wasn't working. And after about two hours of going through customer assistance, trying to figure out why, the PC release, which they had, which had been marketed as the actual release, was on my birthday. The console release was a month later. I can understand the frustration. They like I said, had I... been oh, trumpeting the fact that, oh, four more days, three more days, two more days. Do you have your copy? Are you playing it now? No, I can't because I'm waiting a month because <laughs> you pulled the same elitist bullshit. I, in all fairness, I feel like there is elitism for every console. It's a different kind, and I will say that PC elitism is the most insufferable. I am a PC gamer, master race person, and I accept that that it's the most insufferable. But there is definitely an elitism to every console's, like every person's console choice. Like people get very defensive about that for I, no. It's reason. it's dumb. I love all my consoles equally. I have pretty much one of every system because I have different systems for different games. And this exclusivity only hurts us, the gamers. Oh, as far as game releases go, I think, uh, yeah, exclusives are idiotic. I get the capitalistic idea why they exist, but yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the main reasons why I'm a primarily a PC player is because I can get the largest, like, share of different games on it. Plus, there's a lot of, like, convenience uh, in that, but... Then there's things like when Bloodborne, they refuse to release on PC, and I get really pissed off because I'm just a fan of those games in general, or what you're talking about right now. It's just, it just breeds anger, I think. Yeah, so I was just outraged, and I debated about returning the game. But as you all know, I love XCOM. I did not play the originals, but it is a fantastic game. And for those of you that haven't played XCOM or don't know what I'm talking about, XCOM is a turn-based squad strategy game in which the Earth is invaded by some aliens. This secret project put into action called the XCOM project, and you go out with your squad and you fight the aliens. Now, Can I interrupt you for just sure. a moment? Uh, I'm going to make this very simple. Did you ever? Hey, anyone out there? Have you ever played Fire Emblem and thought? This would be great if it had more aliens than you want to play XCOM. Yeah, I've never played Fire Emblem, but if it's like XCOM... Fire, and... Emblem, Fire Emblem came out first. A lot of people mix that up, but XCOM is... When did Fire Emblem come out? Uh, my buddy Stevie, who's really into both Fire, Fire Emblem and XCOM, looked this up, but the first Fire Emblem came out before the first XCOM. Uh... Uh, but... You have to double check the exact dates. Anyway, the yeah. point is though, just because that's like an actual debate people have, which is really dumb because you can just check the dates. But why that's are the we point. debating over stupid shit? There are bigger things. They're both exactly. awesome games. Exactly, and that's the thing is like really XCOM and Fire Emblem are two sides of a coin. Do you prefer a sci-fi like military aesthetic? Play XCOM. Do you prefer a fantasy like magic and slightly anime aesthetic? Play Fire Emblem. So yeah, but the biggest thing and the thing that kind of got me hooked on the first XCOM and carried me through the moon for XCOM 2 were two things. One is permadeath, which really can make or break the game for you. Some people do not like the difficulty curve that inspires when you lose your highest ranked soldier. 
but the uh, frosting that goes on that for me that works is you can craft your friends. So not only have you lost your best soldier, you've lost your best friend. And XCOM was a fantastic game. It had a couple glitches here and there. It got a bit repetitive near the end. Um, the scaling of technology kind of got pointless. But like, by the way, you reached a plateau. By the way, sorry, I was listening, but uh, just because I wanted to fact check myself, the first Fire Emblem, which was Shadow Dragon and the Blade of Light, April 20th, 1990. The first XCOM, UFO, Enemy Unknown, 1994. There you go, people. Now, now find it out in the comments on which game is better. <laughs> um, I'm a Fire Emblem fan, but you we're not talking about Fire Emblem. You go ahead. <laughs> um... So yeah, you have these, so you really grow attached to these characters. And then XCOM 2 came out. It improved a lot on the base game, but one of the number one complaints people had was that it put time limits on your missions, which is not something you should have in a strategy game and a strategy game that focuses on stealth. Because XCOM 2 did something unique for a sequel. Because one of the best things about XCOM and the permadeath system is you can lose. Like you will get backed into a corner and lose. And the developers went and saw how many people had lost on their first playthrough, their second playthrough, whatever playthrough they had gone through, and said, what if we made the sequel about what happened if XCOM failed and is now fighting a guerrilla ops? Good idea. Which is a fantastic idea. So, but this, it, was, it became very stealth heavy, which is fine, but the time limit didn't work for a lot of people. And again, one of the problems that reoccurred from the first one was your technology kind of plateaued if you played smart halfway through the game you would reach a level of technology that uh made it so there was no real difficulty left to the game now when war of the chosen came out not only it fixed everything uh -huh. it took away it added in so you could control more elements you can control the difficulty you make it easier or harder for yourself it made it so you can make the missions longer or shorter and it introduced the nemesis system which is now four hero characters for the aliens have been introduced that will appear at random throughout missions solely to screw you over because of what they can do they are made to be broken isn't the and nemesis system what they call the orc system in shadows of war Sure. Yeah, sort of. And it works along the same way in that your soldiers will evolve and grow to hate these chosen or fear them, depending on their exposure to them, which will then affect later games. So it added that whole new level and it fixed the technology thing by adding in all sorts of fun little thing flavors like specialized ammunition, specialized grenades, other one-off things you could only really produce one of. So if you wanted to produce more, you had to scavenge and try and find these other things. And it extended the life of the game, and it added so much more customization than was already there. One of the best parts of the game is propaganda posters, which <laughs> doesn't really add anything, but you can take a mission photo after you've completed a mission, and it will appear in the background of your procedurally generated maps. That's and neat. I think the best part of these games, and anyone that's played this, is the stories you have. I have some great stories from the first one and i've got some great stories from the second one but the one that applies here was unfortunately you did not make it through this playthrough well you know you, you can say you can we can have like a whole section of time dedicated to if you've got stories about experiences of the game that sounds like a conversation worth having another time uh but i i i, I understand but I, I gotta tell you how you died because oh, i don't oh, know oh you're talking about me specifically like my yeah. character in your game yes oh go ahead then <laughs> um, no, I there's a whole bunch, I have a bunch of great stories, but this one, 
I'm a narcissist. Talk about me. (laughs) You went on a special data retrieval mission because I made you a specialist. You had a little drone. You were our uh, team's healer. And you went in with a rookie into an area that had been infested with these things called the Lost, which are another new gameplay element. They're essentially zombies. Okay. But they don't eat flesh. They just attack you. And combat draws more. So it has a ticking clock element. You can kill them if you want, but the more you kill, the more are drawn to you. So your best bet is to get the hell out of there as quickly as possible. Okay. And of course, the aliens are there as well trying to stop you. So we got the data. We're making a run for it. And the rookie's out ahead, and you're kind of falling behind trying to shoot them. And I realize it's like, okay, either I can get the rookie and the data out, but sacrifice you, or you can make a heroic last stand and we'll complete the mission, but we lose you. Heroic stand works for me. (laughs) XCOM is built on these decisions. Like, this is a really important mission to succeed in, but I don't want to lose this, you know, veteran character. And ultimately, I decided, okay, well, what would Chance do? And, of course, it was decided, go down in hail of gunfire. And you killed, like, five zombies before being crushed by an alien super heavy. Hmm. But we extracted your body, and you got a memorial poster. Awesome. Could be on propaganda. Yeah. And, I mean, it's moments like that that really make this game. All right. So, yeah, uh, definitely one of my favorite games of this year. Um, That's all I can say. I love strategy games. Well, yeah, I'm not a fan of XCOM games, but... I, well, okay, I'm a fan of XCOM games to the extent that I'm a fan of tactics games in general. I love Final Fantasy Tactics and I love Fire Emblem, but I'm just not a huge fan of the uh, military versus aliens aesthetic. There's really not any games that do that short of Resistance, The Fall of Man. Which is an into. awesome game, which you haven't haven't played. Go. What do you mean I haven't, oh, are you talking them? Yeah, <laughs> yes, if you haven't yes, played it, go back and find it. The first one is near perfect, then they kind of fizzle out, but the first one is solid. First one still holds up by today's standards, definitely. Yes. Anyway, it's funny when we sat down to to talk about like what games, or when we started planning out having this particular conversation. I had plenty of games that I thought I could talk about for this year, like Getting Over with Bennett Foddy, which I mentioned before, or uh, Divinity One and Two. Two came out this year. Uh, I only started playing one this year though, and I've only put a few hours in two, but both of them tactics games, very great. But then last weekend. A friend of mine, uh, Wretched, who I talked about, the guy who bought me for honor, uh, he came to visit me and just for a weekend, and he bought me Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice. It's like a $30 game, and it was in the morning because I picked him up from the airport at like 7.30, so we came back to my place. He bought me the game, and then we just played it for the next seven hours. Well, I played it, and he just watched, and I beat it, and it was one of the best video game experiences I've had. Like, sure, it has a lot of problems, and a lot of it is pretty uh, stock generic. The The combat is basically a weaker version of what the good Prince of Persia games do. But <laughs> but the the aesthetic and the experience with it is is so okay. Even before I get into that, I want to I want to sidebar here and say that I you know researching the game afterwards. Did you know that that game was released without a publisher? Which one? No, it had no publisher. Hellblade was oh. made by a company called Ninja Theory, and they did. So I think they did some level of like crowdfunding, but enough to the point where they released it with no publisher. And they I've released- heard about that. The, the more and more companies are, are at least the crowdfunded games are moving away from big publishers. Yeah. Well, Ninja Theory have done 
uh, stuff before. I admit I'm not too familiar with their background, but releasing they, they call this game a indie triple A. I think that's I don't like that term because I, I think that it's too good to be associated with triple A as a title. <laughs> uh, that's a discussion but, for another time. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, it has like the quality of a triple A game, but it's priced fairly, like thirty dollars for like a seven hour single campaign experience, as unique as it is. I'm I think that's perfectly legitimate. Uh, no DLC or season pass or any of that crap. So just from like a, a business perspective, I think it's a game worth supporting. But the actual the fact that the actual game itself is really good is just on top of it. Do you know much about it? I have not heard anything about this game. I have never even heard of it. But uh, I don't you, play a lot of indie games on Steam. Uh, you need to play it. it. Like, seriously, buy it. It's like 30 bucks on Steam. It, just buy it. It's, it's about a... A, a picked, a pictish warrior, a, Ooh, a girl. I, I'm already interested. Yeah, who, uh, her husband or lover or whatever was killed by Viking raiders, and they they uh, sacrificed his body to the goddess Hell. So his soul is stuck in Helheim as opposed to the Celtic afterlife. So she takes his head because the head is the seat of the soul. So she takes it with her and she goes to Helheim with the goal of getting his soul back. So the, so the game is all about you traveling through Helheim, interacting with uh, Norse in, encounters. Uh, there's even like uh, a mechanic in the game where there's these stones called lore stones, and their only function is to tell you a Norse story. Like They'll just tell the story of uh, how the Norse world was created, or they'll tell the story of how uh, Baldur died. And they're really accurate. As someone who has uh, two copies of of the Norse Smiths sitting by my bed at all times. Why do you have two copies? Because I have the original one I got from Kevin Crossley Holland, or written by uh-huh. Kevin Crossley Holland, and I have Neil Gaiman's version. Oh, okay. Fictionalized version, but they're both great. Yeah, anyway, they are. I've read both. Yeah, so I went into it, and not saying, again, I can suspend my disbelief. I play the Vikings in For Honor, and they're not accurate, but something about if you're going to play a game this heavy into the Norse mythology, I'm going to be a little critical. And it's super accurate. Throughout like the whole game, I found maybe like two or three things that bugged me, and they were very nitpickish. Like, at one point, someone refers to Odin looking for a way to um, change his fate at Ragnarok, and I was like, eh, no, the, the Norse gods recognize their fate, and they accept it. Which is one of the, the reasons that whole... Antheon is so fascinating. Exactly. But besides that, the actual stories are really accurate. And all that's just surface level stuff. The game is really an excuse for them to essentially portray uh, psychosis and schizophrenia. Ah, I have heard about this game. It has an unreliable narrator. Very. Right? uh, Very. Now, this isn't spoiling anything because it literally has. So the game opens, right? And Senua is like on a, a log canoe thing. And you hear the narrator start talking, and it's just like you know a dozen or a hundred other games where it's like, okay, the narrator is setting the scene. And then the game starts playing, and the narrator doesn't stop. And there are other voices joining her, talking with her. And then they like mention, oh, she heard us. And the main character like turns and looks at you, the player, like, and she's like looking around, and it never stops. The voices you realize, like you know, at less than an hour into the game, that those are the voices she hears in her head all the time and they do not stop and yeah. it really makes you the player 
feel the unnerve like even when you're in an area where you know nothing can like jump out at you or anything because it isn't a jump scare game it's totally an atmosphere game mm -hmm. it's yeah, just so I, pressing i remember hearing about this now and being really excited for it and then finding out and wrapping back to another topic it was a uh, playstation 3 pc exclusive yeah like I said, you pick it up on PC then, or because it is it is very much worth the the dollar just for being such a unique experience. Senua herself is pretty weak as a character, but that's part of why she's interesting as a character because she's so weak. Her psychosis has left her in this state that you have to experience with her, and it's extremely effective at doing it. And even the combat reaches a point, like you get into a rhythm where you can start feeling like a like a badass, like deflecting knives thrown at you back at the enemies and shit. It, the immersion level is there that it sucks you in. Exactly. And there are puzzles that are not necessarily really hard, but like really unique and enthralling. Uh, there was a game-breaking glitch when the game first came out, but they patched it pretty quick. Anyway, uh, as far as like anyone who's starving for a really good single player campaign with a structured narrative, because I love games where you can build your own character and do choices and stuff, but they have to make certain concessions. This is just, here's the narrative, here's the story you want to tell, now experience it, and it is damn good. Hell, it's an indie game that's not done in 8-bit. <laughs> sure, I sure. mean, indie developers, I love what you're doing, it's fine. But there's a whole range of graphics outside 8-bit that you can do. I mean, I, again, we'll have a talk all about the rise of, in, of in develop, independent game developers, the pros, the cons, the what have you. But when you tell me there's an indie game out there that is good, that is an 8-bit, and that is, has, the, has an incredible single-player campaign, which is really hard to find anymore <laughs> in modern games, I'm sold. Yeah, that's why I'll, I'll end off by saying that I, I know you, and I'm talking to you specifically, Ulrich, and as someone who's into mythology, who's into single-player experiences, and who's into like philosophical conversations, yeah, you need to play this game. Yeah, no, that sounds... I was excited for that one from the beginning, but I'm trying to justify the purchase of my Xbox One, and Xbox won't make any games worth playing! Uh, again, as a PC gamer, I get a wider range, but... I understand. I'm a PC gamer too, but I play. I use it mainly for strategy games because you can't beat classic RTS with mouse and keyboard. Well, speaking of strategy games... Yeah, and again, speaking of strategy games, my other game that I think I sunk over 100 hours into is, again, another sequel, is Total War Warhammer 2. Um, I have been a fan of the Total War series since way back when it first launched with Shogun, which is not a good game. <laughs> All right. It's an old school RTS turn-based strategy hybrid. It was one of the first ones to do it, but the graphics and the controls and it's so bare bones, but I have been playing the Total War games since then. And uh, you're an RTS junkie too. So I am an RTS junkie. And I, I love RTSs, but I am so bad at them that I pretty much just limit myself to uh, StarCraft 1 and Age of Mythology. So. The interesting thing about the Total War series is it takes elements of the turn-based strategy, but it, and it takes elements of the RTS. All the turn-based stuff is, you know, in your base building, and even that's kind of limited to your cities. The real strategy is, um, it comes in the real-time elements, when you're controlling massive armies, 
And what pays off there is your ability to understand basic concepts like flanking, uh, suppressive fire, artillery, all that great stuff. And as you know, I'm already a huge Warhammer 40k fan. Yep, yep. Um, I, I was like not, of War. <laughs> yeah, I was not a Warhammer Fantasy fan before this game came out. And uh, but since then, since you know the first game came out and now the second one, I have you know dove into the fantasy elements of Warhammer and uh, seeing this as part of a trilogy. Um, it's going to be a huge game. But the first one was really good, but again, it had its uh, flaws. There wasn't a lot of depth to it. Um, it was it was one I would almost buy for you because one, I want someone else to play this with. Two, yeah. it's a great learning game because a lot of the complexities have been stripped away. I'll tell you, by the way, if someone buys me a game, I will do them the courtesy of putting at least four hours into it. As proven by the fact that the guy who bought me The Witcher 2, I've got four hours in it, so... <laughs> but uh this one it added things in that it has its own unique campaign that is totally different than the first one where you're just building up and waiting to survive a horde this one is you are collecting magical relics as you are trying to uh beat out your opponents as well as facing off reoccurring invasions and while the first one can kind of be accused of each of the armies feels kind of samey, mm -hmm. the four founding races in this one are totally different. I mean, you've got the Lizardmen, which are Aztec dinosaur, Aztec lizards that ride dinosaurs. Hmm. You've got the Skaven. the Orcs, man. You know I want to hear about the Orcs. The Orcs are in the first one. Ah. Um, uh, then you've got the Skaven, which I think you'd like, which are giant ratmen who invent some of the craziest engineering devices. Oh, tech, a tech race of course i love tech races in it's just but it's uh ramshackled tech well yeah like i said i love the orcs with a k so yeah <laughs> uh these are basically rat orcs except they're cowards um uh, it, it plays a fun element they're a huge so they're goblins yeah very much goblins you've got the dark elves which follow a lot of your standard tropes of dark elves they're evil they are sadomasochists um but Man, can they pump out the damage. And then you've got the High Elves, which are the total opposite in that they are a great come-and-get-it army. <laughs> and then you form a massive shield wall and then force your enemy to charge at you under massive rain of uh, fire, all the while waiting for your giant dragons to come and curb-stomp your enemy. You should feel honored. I did my absolute best not to tune out when you said elves, because I am so biased against elves in any medium. So I agree, and typically I was like, I'm not a big elf. Actually, I found myself liking the high elves, consider and considering that I played the dwarves in the first game, who their arch enemy for fantastic reasons are the high elves. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, you get this great mini campaign. But to make it even better, this campaign will then tie in to the first game. So you've had the first game and the second game. You get to bring all the races from the first game and fight them against all the races of the second game on a giant map for who gets to be ruler of it all. And it creates some really interesting... Um, what's the word I'm searching for here? Interplay between the races. Uh, I think that the, one of the best ones that I've seen was an orc player versus a skaven player. And both of these are horde armies. Both of these are armies that have just a ton of you know uh not glass cannon units but they 
they can get stuck in there and they will fight for a while. So you have this giant green mass charging towards a giant brown mass <laughs> and meeting in the middle. And then all of a sudden, this bolt of green energy will come shooting down and blow a huge chunk out of the orc line. And that's, you know, where the Skaven have this interesting element of they've got these cool, we'll call them lightning cans. It's the best way to describe it if you don't know the lore. Lasers. <laughs> there you go, giant lasers. And then the orcs come swarming with their giants. And there's some really great interplay. Or watching a group wait, of wait, wait, empire. Or, if, I, if I paint the rock yellow, will it explode? <laughs> that's some orc humor for anyone who's not in the know so yeah i don't yeah that rule does apply in fantasy as well or uh there's a great examples of the heavily mounted you know empire knights tearing through a line of elven spearmen only to be hit by a dragon i'm gonna I mean, ask you i mean it's not it's not nearly on the same level because it's not tactical but have you played any of the various battle simulator games like ultimate epic battle simulator I've seen it, and that's a great way to describe what the real-time battles are like, these huge you know, armies, but more strategies involved. Well, yeah, I mean, the reason I haven't picked up Ultimate Epic Battle Simulator yet, I plan to. I recognize that it doesn't, because you're not actually like playing a campaign, really, but I want to figure out if a game built like that, like if I set up a scenario where, say, I, I put like a square of Roman warriors and then like actually have cavalry units positioned in such a place where they flank if it would actually if the game was actually smart enough to make things like formations actually affect it so and that's the whole reason i haven't really picked up the game is because this game fills that niche for me because each game has gotten better about implementing certain strategies and one of the weakest parts has always been cavalry and pathfinding mm -hmm. i mean typically we'll send cavalry to charge at a line and you want them to go around the flank, and they will almost always charge straight into Spearman and die. <laughs> but this one, they made it so you can curve the path. So they, you can, whatever pattern you draw, they will follow and, you know, smash into flank. So cavalry is, you know, better now forever. And each army feels it has its own individual strengths for your play style. As important as cavalry is, uh, I've... I would say that there are at least a number of historians who would say that uh, most ancient war was won by spears and archery. So, yeah, but I mean, and they have like if you are a if you like fast, heavy hitting armies, they've got one for that. If you are a sit and wait steamroller army, they've got one for that. There is an army for everybody, and they put out regular, good quality DLC fairly regularly adding new races, adding new lords, adding new elements to the game, and there's a bunch of free DLC. And the biggest change for this game over previous Total War games is it introduced RPG elements for your lords and heroes in that you can assign them skills and you can assign them relics that make them better in battle, and you can tailor them towards fighting a certain way. So if you want a cavalry general, you can assign them a special steed and a special sword and special armor and then a special uh, standard so they are better cavalry. If you want a better artillery, uh, this game has so much depth and the fact that they are constantly adding to it and the fact that by the time this is done, you will have three games and I think looking like 80-some various playable races combined together in a giant map. Wow. It is I mean a game worth playing. If I was more into real-time strategy, I'm more of a turn-based strategy guy, though. So, <laughs> Well, there's the turn-based element. The real-time doesn't come really fighting on the ground. Yeah. 
And I kind of, like I said, I want to find someone to play this with because one of the other elements they brought back or introduced in this game is that you can play a co-op campaign with a friend. Well, hey, man, if you see it on sale and pick it up for me, like I said, I'll, I'll play it with you. But uh, right. I think we should move on to, to the next year. <laughs> yeah, this year. Um... And I want to say, just like with uh, Hellblade, I had like a, a grouping of games that, to mention. And then like two or three days ago, there's an announcement for freaking Dark Souls Remastered. And I'm like, my mind's exploding. Well, any excuse to, to play Dark Souls again. So me and all my, my Soulsborne friends are all super hyped for it. I mean, one of the big things is getting it on the Switch. I don't own a Switch, but I've got friends who own the Switch. And the idea of having it mobile, like... So you can suffer in public. <laughs> See, it's not suffering to me. I mean, I think this is a conversation worth having devoting an entire episode two at some point because i'm i'm a souls not veteran because there are people who put a lot more time into it than me but i've got probably a collective thousand hours you're into a dark souls junkie and i will go <laughs> no, ahead junkie, and put my... i'll accept junkie yeah because yeah, i need my I, fix <laughs> i will go ahead and put my head on the chopping block i do not like dark souls i understand why people like it for the same reason i understand why people like heroin <laughs> I, I think that you're well that's the thing is i feel like in my conversations with you you are missing something fundamental uh like again this is worth an entire discussion before but you have referred to dark souls as broken in the past and i feel I like i stand that, by that statement but we're not going to go into that wrong because this will we'll turn into a, this will turn into a four-hour podcast of us <laughs> arguing which will then devolve into us screaming and throwing shit at each other and name calling which is why, uh, definitely when I bring Wretched onto here, we're going to talk souls, you know it, and we're going to browbeat you into submission, because that's what a Dark Souls fan knows how to do. <laughs> oh, no. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, that's why. But yeah, so even though I don't have a Switch, I'm still super excited for Dark Souls Remastered, just another excuse to, to play that, that masterpiece again. So uh, you go ahead. You, you say one, though. I don't have as many games on my list partially because of my gaming habits of i only the way my schedule works and everything that's going on with you know a kid on the way for us i don't have a lot of time to play games so i really like uh pause and play games as you can tell with you know the total war being turn-based and again XCOM being turn-based so of course i'm excited for the next historical title from total war total war three kingdoms and the reason i'm so excited about this is this is a new historical genre we haven't touched on before it is the uh three kingdoms war in china okay which to me promises to be really really cool because one i know nothing about you know chinese warfare ancient china all that and given that each game has built on the success of the last, except for Total War Attila, that was a garbage game, um, <laughs> I'm really excited to see all of the elements they've done through the first two Warhammer games and what they're going to bring here, and to visit a whole new genre of history I know nothing about, and of course the return of naval combat, and it being totally different than any game before. Um, I don't know what else to say, but this is a great year for me because I'm getting at least three new Total War games. 
and this one's going to be the crown jewel. Hey man, I'm really happy for you because before the Dark Souls remastered like announcement, I didn't have a game on my list that I was super psyched for because I already know I'm going to love Dark Souls remastered. It's basically just a an update version of one of my favorite games already I'm, I'm hoping for some quality of life updates but if i don't get them it's fine i still love it the rest of the stuff on my list is stuff that's just interesting that i, I that i want to play but most of it i'm really trepidatious for with the exception of uh one game i actually am excited for is Mega Man 11 now See, with uh i've never been a Mega Man fan so maybe you can explain to me why that is such a big game for you okay so i've been playing Mega Man games since i was very young right uh and already you also starred in a Mega Man fan film. Oh, I did. That's right. Uh, for this is kind of a, a sidebar, but yeah, I had a friend in high school who would make like movies with his friends, and they were—I mean, they were amateur films, obviously, amateur films by a high schooler. But he was pretty good at it, and I thought they were better than you know equivalent material. And yeah, he made a uh, a Mega Man movie, and I got to be Skull Man. I wasn't starring; I was one of the bad guys, but still. It's a, it a fun is the time. best Mega Man movie I've seen to date. <laughs> oh, thank you. I, I forgot you'd even seen it. Uh, anyway, but so, yeah, so Mega Man, Man, why are you excited about this game, considering its rocky past thus far? Well, here's the thing: uh, Mega Man games have a. It, it's not like Sonic, right? Where there's a huge <laughs> fandom. Oh, but... so long ago, Sonic was good. What happened yeah, that's the to thing. You, Sonic? people? People accept that Sonic games aren't good on the whole. There's like two or three that are genuinely great. There's yeah, uh, one or two, two that are very, yeah, there's one or two that are good, and then the rest are varying levels of bad, essentially. But Mega Man is much more on the other side of that, where yeah, there's a, you know a handful of not very good ones, but the core series of games that this is a continuation of have always been extremely consistent. Even what's generally considered to be like one of the worst ones, Mega Man Eight, which was like the second one I ever played, uh, which is also extremely difficult. At least it was for me at the time. I haven't played in a few years, um, well, more than a few years. But anyway, I still love it. Like one thing Mega Man has over almost any other game just on the surface is th- uh, that music there's a reason why he was called rock man and or just rock in the original like th- they had the best soundtracks and that could get you pumped and when you're going through you know this platformer shooting things to kick ass music then it's just a great experience and they you know they refined it and polished it and uh this year we had mighty number no. nine which was supposed to be like, oh, well, we have spiritual. Is that like a spiritual sequel or from the, not a spiritual sequel, more like an homage because they're, yeah. Yeah. Cause they'd been focusing on Mega Man X for a long time. And don't get me wrong. Mega Man X, the original Mega Man X is probably the best Mega Man game in my opinion. But if you disagree with me, fine. But if you want to know like why I think that, just go watch uh, Aaron Hansen's sequelitis video on Mega Man X because that shit is gold and he's really good at what he's doing there. Anyway, so we're focusing on, focusing on Mega Man X. So Mighty Number no. 9 comes out. It's like, all right, this is supposed to be an homage to uh, the Mega Man games because we haven't had one in a while. And then um, the people making it just made every wrong decision and money number nine yeah years. i was gonna say didn't that one fall flat on its face roll around yeah. its own shit and then explode yeah well it's funny because uh in one of their trailers they actually have a line where the narrator says make the enemies cry like an anime fan on prom night 
And I'm sitting here like, do you not, do you not know who your fan base is? The people who are going to buy your game are the people that you just insulted. They're trying a controversial <laughs> tactic. They're trying to piss you off so that you will buy the game and protest. <laughs> well, it didn't work. And, it worked uh, for Keurig, though. Look how much <laughs> their stocks went up. On top of it, the game itself is just not great. Even by like poor Mega Man standards, my number nine is just um, designed poorly. So to see like the actual company behind Mega Man release a, a new legit official Mega Man game is just exciting. Maybe it'll be middling. Maybe it will be, you know, uh, you know, un- largely uninteresting. But that is still like an exciting prospect to have a, a proper Mega Man game this year. Yeah, um, I think I played one Mega Man like we're back on the PlayStation Two. I have no idea <laughs> which one that was, but I remember it being enough um but Man, when I'm, i was young before you before y'all when i was young i literally had uh, japanese versions of game boy Mega Man games so yeah it was never i'm not i was not a nintendo kid really i did not play a lot of games that you know nintendo staples or even from japan yeah well my my grandfather uh he worked as an engineer at qualcomm and he would travel to japan a lot and so he'd come back and he'd give me these like these stacks of game boy advance games that i i didn't couldn't read but they would be filled with like 25 games on them and it would be basically one proper game and then like 24 uh not very large like tiny simple games like one of them had bomberman and then a bunch of stuff i i didn't understand and one of them had like three different versions of uh of just japanese Mega Man. so now was that translated like uh no, it was not translated <laughs> whole thing was in japanese i had no idea what i had to just figure stuff out with the- that's <laughs> why you like dark souls you like you know not enjoying your game uh you're incorrect <laughs> dark souls is super enjoyable we will talk about that another time but <laughs> Actually, of those games, the one he got me that was the most interesting was, I don't know what the game was, but it had Gamera in it. And I was a Godzilla fan, so I was like, who was this you know, giant kaiju turtle thing? And I had no idea what the controls were, because it was like a turn-based fighting game, and I would just mash buttons and hope Gamera would do the breath attack. <laughs> Isn't that how everyone plays fighting games? Uh, that's how people who don't like fighting games play fighting games. Oh, oh it did something cool! I don't know what button it did, but... See, I I'm a fighting game aficionado. I think that might be giving myself too much credit, but like for instance, if you ever want to see what a fighting game Okay, I'll give you two examples real quick. Um a fighting game that is made for casual people that can still function just really well for fighting game fans, Super Smash Brothers Melee, that one specifically. Yeah, I played on that. On the o- Yeah, on the other hand, a fighting game made by fighting game fans for fighting game fans and is super unfriendly to non-fighting game fans, Skullgirls. And I love Skullgirls. Never even heard of that one. It feels like a creepy fetish. Uh, well, considering that uh, I've been told, I don't know if this is true, that a lot of these sprites were actually drawn by uh, Zone, who is a creator of, of hentai flash animations. And it we is... get a deeper look into your personal history. <laughs> Well, point is, Skullgirls is, like I said, made by fighting game fans for fighting game fans. It's a very, like, complicated system. Uh, well, okay, it depends on what your, you know, general base of knowledge is when it comes to fighting games. But, yeah, Skullgirls is really fun. It's got great music and 
Great. I mean, that's another game I played this year, but I don't need to talk too much about it. So yeah. Um. So for me, this is a game that I'm going to give the Battlefield Two award to, in which I am super excited about, and I hope doesn't fail. But it's a Ubisoft production, and that's Skull and Bones, mm. which is for honor, but with pirate ships. Okay. Go on. Like. Everything I have looked into and read about this game, that is what this essentially plans to be. Oh, each, I have heard about it, yeah. Yeah. Each person gets the pirate pa, captain, I was going to say pilot, but they are on the <laughs> water, not in the air, their own ships and sail about fighting uh, friends in, fi- in up to 5v5 matches. So you and your friends can get together and form a fleet. It is from the same development team that did Assassin's Creed Black Flag, which is... I I was about to say, there's a reason why Black Flag is the only Assassin's Creed game I own, because I could be a goddamn pirate. Yeah, and this one is uh, the trailer, the gameplay, the few things, all sounds promising. I love the idea of building a fleet of five ships with my friends and becoming a pirate king. Um, it reminds me of, I mean, just you're saying, it reminds me of me and you playing uh, Guns of Icarus. I know we didn't play that nearly as much as you would have liked, but still, I had fun when we did play it. And it's a great game. But the thing, and I do like Guns of Icarus, if you haven't played that, go play that one. What this does is you are only responsible for your ship alone. So, and it's talking about things like we'll have, it's a huge open world. So pretty much, theoretically, the minute you enter this thing and start sailing, you can go to be in a fight at any time so it gets that kind of you know it actually feels like the time period someone else could appear at any time and there are you have to you know learn to use the wind to your advantage you have to learn uh to fire on the upswing or the downswing you have to learn to read the weather because they are talking that you can have things like storms can break out you can have uh reefs and sandbars and then there are other more interesting things they talk about like uh, you can encounter a whirlpool or the most terrifying mythological creature ever dreamt of, the Kraken. <laughs> uh, and I have thalassophobia, which is fear of large bodies of water. So the Kraken is legitimate nightmare territory for me. It should be for everyone. It's a giant squid the size of an island that pulls ships down a hole. And if you watch the trailer, they really do tease it. There's this great scene of a 3v3 ship fight and then them scooping up the remains, and all of a sudden these things start bubbling up, and they start looking around panickingly, and the camera zooms out, and you just see a single tentacle of the Kraken. I would love... <laughs> yeah, that gave me the heebie-jeebies. But imagine how much fun, if that does make it into the game. Please do not let that be a pointless tease. You're having this intense 5v5 fight with you and your friends. You've just won. You're like, ha, we've got the gold. All of a sudden, a ship to you to the left of you explodes. A ship to the right of you explodes. All of a sudden, a kraken. Now it's, you know, by, by the way, man, to fight a kraken. By the way, man, I, I got to point this out. But when I when I say like the lassophobia, it might be like a, uh, it might sound like a joke, like oh, I'm afraid of a video game creature. But no, seriously, when I go see movies with my friend Winvog. Like when we went and saw Life of Pi, there's a scene that's supposed to be super beautiful and like. I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, where the camera is up top, and you see a whale go under the ship. And Woundvog told me that he felt me clutch the 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 handles or the the armrests and tense up because I did. I was like, just then I really really hope this game is good because I totally want you on a pirate ship when the kraken attacks, so the kraken goes after you, and the rest of us can sail away. 
Sorry, man. Uh, we got the gold. You play with the giant sea monster now. You guys are assholes. I get out of this. I'm putting cannonballs through your hole. And I mean, again, so much of this is speculation and promise, and that was kind of the case with For Honor. But I, I'm really hoping it pays off. And they're being a bit more honest. This one is going to be just a multiplayer-only game where you explore and you go around. But if even half of it is true, being able to select your ammo. Hell, if it's even just a remastered, updated version of Black Flag, I would <laughs> buy it in an instant. Yeah. So I'm really, really hoping this game works out. This is my Battlefront 2 game. Please, please do not <laughs> disappoint me. So I've got I've got two games that I want to talk about together because I'm not actually a, too knowledgeable about either, but I feel like they're very interesting for similar reasons. I, I, actually, I shouldn't say... Anyway, they are Psychonauts 2 and System Shock. So I actually haven't played Psychonauts, but I am very aware of its status in the video game community as being... I know like, nothing about this one. Okay. It uh, sounds familiar. But look I don't up, know anything. I don't know, look up like Yahtzee's zero punctuation on it, or it's, ah, it's one of those. That's always a good place to start. Yeah, it's one of those games that like it's it was never really big, but players who did play it really love it, and it's got a major cult following, kind of like like Conker's Bad Fur Day or something like that, and it's roughly the same kind of era. But, Fair uh, but now, so it's you know it's been I don't know how many years, but Psychonauts One, you can tell by looking at it, it's an old game, and now we're getting a Psychonauts Two this year, and like that's a lot of pressure. So just understanding the cultural status of Psychonauts 1, I'm excited and worried about Psychonauts 2. Like, if I hear Psychonauts 2 is, you know, pretty good, then I'll pick up... You know, I own Psychonauts 1, so I don't have to playing it. But I'll, I'll make it a point. As for System Shock... I've heard of this one. I know this is an old-school one, and it's considered the predecessor to Bioshock, I remember? Uh, pretty literally. Like, Bioshock is, is very much a spiritual sequel to System Which... Shock. Those right down were good to the games. wielding a wrench. Yeah, Bioshock 1 is one of my... I feel like Bioshock 1 is one of the most important video games ever made. Like, it's such a legitimate piece of art. And I love Bioshock Infinite, and there's a lot of my friends who like Infinite more than one. I like one a little bit more. For, I, I like Infinite more than one. Which is fine. I, I don't think that you're wrong to like Infinite more. I just prefer the... Because both Infinite and Bioshock 1 are dealing with philosophical issues they're exploring them from certain like angles and i'm more interested in the angles and ideas that bioshock one is dealing with i also much prefer the horror aesthetic to the uh you are the guy who's as a swashbuckler messing up the city element uh yeah. i will say that as far as like structure is concerned infinite is definitely better because bioshock one's last fifth of the game kind of falls apart but anyway unfortunately yeah, besides the point, um, point is, Bioshock are great games, and they basically exist because of System Shock, which uh, I haven't played, but I know is you know a good game as well. So, same thing, you're remaking a classic game that is like so ingrained in like a lot of gamers' uh, identity as a gamer. It's that you know it's just a dangerous thing. I hope it's good. Uh, yeah, this is uh, anytime you take something someone loves and remakes it, you're running a big risk. And then this is similar, but I don't put it in the same category as those two. But there's a Spider-Man game coming out this year. Now, Spider-Man games, as far as my money's worth, there are two, like no, three really good ones. Uh, and there's like dozens of them that exist. But Spider-Man 2... Every Spider-Man game I've played I like, but I, haven't, I didn't realize there was as many as there were. Like, I played the movie games. Those were fun. Uh, Spider-Man 2 
was really good. Spider-Man 2 was probably the best superhero game, period, largely because it was until until Batman Arkham Asylum. I'll take it back. Arkham Asylum was better. But until Arkham Asylum made you feel like the Batman, Spider-Man 2 made you feel like Spider-Man. And that was a, a deal, but they just they fucked up the web-slinging in like every game afterwards. Which know. is the best part of Spider-Man. Yeah, That's so every time... you play Spider-Man, it's the swing from webs. Yeah, so every time a Spider-Man game comes out, I, I usually think to myself, eh, this probably won't be good, but I remember all the hours I put into Spider-Man 2 just swinging through the city, and I hope. I have hope. So. Yeah, this is one of... And everyone's got those. That game you really, really hope pays off and breaks you when it doesn't. And uh, I think... Uh, I think the entire Sonic fandom is very aware of that feeling. <laughs> I don't want to talk about the Sonic fandom. They made Google scary. <laughs> true, true. But uh, no, I feel like that really sums up 2017 for me. There were a lot of games I was really excited for and ultimately let me down. But there were a few gems that kind of came through, like the ones we talked about and a few we didn't. And I'm hoping 2018 is a bit different. Like, there's a lot of games coming out, and I really hope they are good. I mean... Well, I've got... I've got two more games to mention for very different reasons. One is uh, we're getting Red Dead Redemption 2, which, similar, I'm not actually a big fan of Red Dead Redemption. I've got one brother who... Okay, thank you. I feel like I'm a crazy person for not being big into that game. Oh, no, I get why people are big into it. Oh, I do too. Yeah, it's got Grand Theft Auto. It's just Grand Theft Auto in the West, and I totally understand why that's awesome. I'm just... But the gun mechanic was so... That's what broke it for me. I couldn't... I didn't like how many buttons it took to draw and fire your gun. That was too many for me. Sure. And that, that ruined the entire game. Like, I really kept trying to go back and play that game. But it was too many buttons, and it was frustrating, and it broke it for me. So I'm really hoping that if they just polish that element, this should be an amazing game. I mean, yeah. who doesn't want to play Cowboy Grand Theft Auto? Well, plus or, Rockstar's always been good about making consistent sequels. I mean, is there really a Grand Theft Auto game that's bad? Yes. Which one? Um, there's that PSP one. Oh, see, I didn't. Even, I wasn't aware that existed. So. Chinatown Tales, okay. or Tales of Chinatown. All right, but uh, okay, ignore that. The main series, right? Grand Theft Auto one, two, three, San Andreas. I know it's not. What was that I, one that Yahtzee loves to go on? That was also pretty bad. I never played, but it's one of his favorite reoccurring jokes. Uh, I don't know, but if it's not, someone tell us I, in the comments. If it's not Vice City or San Andreas, I'd be surprised because those two. Yeah, were... those were both awesome. I can't remember how many hours I've spent playing those games. Like I have four, and I was like, this is just not as good as San Andreas. I've heard five is really good, but I actually haven't played five. So. I haven't had any real interest in it, which is kind of just you know the aesthetic. Like I don't really want to play that. I've got the old ones, and I've got the Godfather game, which to me is a more pleasing aesthetic <laughs> to play. I feel like I just reached a point in my age, that is, where uh, that style of game that Grand Theft Auto offers was just no longer appealing to me. I'm not, I'm not trying to make any statement about maturity or any crap like that. You could be any age and enjoy it. I'm saying me personally. Yeah, I it didn't work for anymore. I just appreciate other things in games now than the like ultimate freedom given by... But you're not too old to play Cowboys in Indian. <laughs> Well, I'm not saying that I am actually excited for Red Dead Redemption 2. I don't really plan to play that one. I just think it's an important one to mention because Red Dead I'll Redemption... I'll give it a try. Now, on the other hand, a game that I think is worth a hearty discussion, uh, perhaps for another time, simply because of how much I am like anti-excited about it, is Kingdom Hearts 3. Interesting. Because I want to I wanna make something very clear. Kingdom Hearts 1 is one of my favorite games 
period. There was a time in my life where I lived in a small trailer with my mom and I had a, uh, a screen that fit on top of my PlayStation 2 because we only had one TV and mom was going to use it to watch uh, you know, Green Acres and stuff like that. And I just played Kingdom Hearts like all day. <laughs> And I, that, you know, it's a good time in my life. And even now, looking back, I replayed it like two years ago, the um, update edition. I think Kingdom Hearts 1 still holds up as an amazing action game, as a legitimately great, like, nostalgia game for all its Disney stuff, and as a, a great original story. So, because of that, I'm a Kingdom Hearts fan. I, I've had costumes of Kingdom Hearts. Uh, so, on that level, I'm always excited when a new Kingdom Hearts game comes out. But, they had a few, haven't they? Like, a lot. There's uh, been two, two point five, two point five and a half, two point well, five Here's what I'm getting to, and this is not a popular opinion. Like I've argued people on this. Like Kingdom Hearts two, for instance, fun game, great game. I love Kingdom Hearts two, but I feel it is objectively inferior to Kingdom Hearts one for a lot of reasons. The the combat is being, and this is true of like a lot of the games because uh, they started incorporating these elements and they just won't get rid of. Like Kingdom Hearts two has a huge emphasis on quick time events. For instance, drives me crazy. It also has a That's large lazy game making right there. It also has a large interest in basically taking control away from the player, so you watch something happen, which is very tied into cutscenes. But I mean, like even your combos will just like last so long that I'm going to sit here and watch him spin for a good like seven seconds. That's a Square Enix thing. They've gotten worse about that recent, or well, not recently, but I know that's from one a, of their hallmarks. And from a narrative point of view, Kingdom Hearts One's narrative, well convoluted i think is actually pretty succinct but once they had uh, a chain of memories i think was the first one actually after kingdom hearts one um they just started poking holes in their own mythos until now it's a joke that kingdom hearts series has one of the most convoluted and ridiculous stories and mythologies in existence and they're completely right i mean one of the things that drives me crazy in kingdom hearts one your goal go to every planet and lock the heart to the planet so that the Heartless can't get to it and destroy the planet, right? That's a pretty simple goal. I mean, there's other stuff going on, but that is why you're traveling to different planets. Yeah, I can follow that. Yeah, in Kingdom Hearts 2, they just forget about that entirely. Like, now they're unlocking paths to new planets, but it's like, oh, hey, you know that whole idea of locking the heart so the Heartless can't destroy your planet? Yeah, fuck that. I don't care about your plan anymore. I'm going away. So they just like destroyed a huge part of what your motivation was in this story. And then they add like Organization 13, which is just an excuse to have villains that are a bunch of original, basically Final Fantasy looking fuckers. And they are largely uninteresting. Like the Heartless were the kind of this force of nature thing. So all the interpersonal like character stuff had to do with you know, uh, like Disney villains that we already have all this love with, like Maleficent, or with uh, you know the original characters to the game that were semi-pro tags. But the organization is boring and sucks as much as their designs are cool. Anyway, well, isn't Kingdom Hearts essentially if Disney made anime? Yeah, you know, well, it's Disney, and you're surprised that they went over the board, made or I mean, over the top, made overly complicated villains and a weird storyline. I mean, isn't that anime 101? Your well, like first half is good, and then you immediately go off the walls? <laughs> no, but we'll talk about that another time. Uh, <laughs> but like I said, it's more accurate to call it Kingdom Hearts Final Fantasy, but even even that is just... Like I said, I love Kingdom Hearts 2. I love Birth by Sleep, which was the PSP one, which was legitimately better than Kingdom Hearts 2, in my opinion. I love 2. Don't be wrong. So, like I said, Kingdom Hearts 3 coming out, it's like, okay, we're finally getting the third one. I'm excited, because it's a Kingdom Hearts game, and I actually like Kingdom Hearts games, but that is why I'm so critical of because yeah, this I has like been them. a game people have like been talking about for 
a while. I mean, everyone. I was never a Kingdom Hearts fan, but through you and connections I've made through you, I have never stopped hearing about Kingdom Hearts. Yeah. So, so like I said, I'm I'm kind of anti excited because supposedly Kingdom Hearts three has been coming out for like ten years or something. I was gonna say I feel like this game already came out, but and there's so many of the sub games like three five eight over two games and Dream Drop Distance, and most of them are middling. They're okay. Like are you I said, sure Bird... this isn't an anime because it sounds like an anime. <laughs> uh, so like I said, uh, I, I, for me, there are three legitimately great Kingdom Hearts games, and they are in order: Kingdom Hearts one. Birth by Sleep, Kingdom Hearts 2. So considering that the primary games, two of the, the two of them have been great times, I will play Kingdom Hearts 3 just because of that. But if, if I come out of it like having enjoyed the experience, but having a lot of problems and having more things to rant about, I will not be surprised. Okay, fair enough. Uh, yeah, honestly, I got nothing. I, the last Final Fantasy game I played was Final Fantasy VIII. I was never able to beat because of a glitch, and I swore then and there never to play a Final Fantasy game again because I had spent so much time and effort only to be denied. I will, I will say, and this is even not my, even my favorite Final Fantasy game, you should bend that rule for 6, but only for 6. No, I'm waiting for the 8 remastered so I can finally beat the game, <laughs> it's and just then I will lift my ban. It's just that 8 is so divisive. Like A lot of Final Fantasy fans don't like 8. I like 8, but I totally understand people who don't like 8. But 6 is like the goddamn magnum opus of That's Final what Fantasy. I hear, but I don't like Final Fantasy games that much to begin with, so maybe that's why I liked Final Fantasy 8. Uh, just don't play 13. I'll have to smack you if you play 13. <laughs> so. No, I, uh, they got weird. But again, they are essentially. Like I said, six, anime. man. It's all about six. People will tell you seven, and yeah, seven's great. There's a reason why it's got it's the one with a franchise. But six is like is the, the real art. All right, so let's just wrap up by moving on to our suggestions of the week. Um, for me, we've talked about this a lot, but uh, there's some awesome stuff on Hulu, and recently they dropped all the Spielberg cartoons. Uh, Animaniacs, Tiny Toons, and of course my all-time favorite, Pinky and the Brain, as well as all the movies they put out. So One yeah. is a genius, the other's insane. The music stuck alone, in your head forever. Yeah, the music alone. I hadn't watched most of these cartoons in well over two decades, but the music I still remember. So I yeah, know the whole I, Tiny Toons theme. I remember the last thinking, time I saw a Tiny Toons song, but I know that theme. Yeah. So I've been uh, catching up on that, reliving my childhood. And interestingly enough, I thought this was funny. As I was going through, one of the suggestions for me was uh, Hey Arnold. And I thought that was funny. Yeah. After you buy the complete season, Hulu's like, hey, let's put Hey Arnold up on there as well. Oh, don't worry. When we do the episode on Nicktoons, I will talk about Hey Arnold at length. Good. Maybe you can explain why so many people liked it. I never could get into it. I thought, Like it I said... I will talk about it at length when we do the Nicktoons episode, because I'm totally calling that... And, well, I'll, I'll let it be a surprise. Anyway, yes. Oh, those are my two big they, watches. Aren't they making new Animaniacs? Like, I've got yeah, a friend. that kind of tied in, I think, is why they did it. Hulu has announced they will be producing new Animaniacs in 2020. Um, yeah. Details yeah, outside of anything beyond that, we don't have anything. Yeah, Woonvog, who we're going to have on talk about tunes with us, he he has all Animaniacs on DVD, and he's a huge fan, so he was telling me about that. Yeah, um, if they get the original voice actors, which they have to, at the very least. Robert Paulson. Yes, National Treasure. Damn right. Uh, so well, what have you been watching, reading, or playing with this week? Well, uh, my, my lady and I just got to finish watching all the way through Silicon Valley, and I got to tell you, as an engineer, that shit is especially hilarious. So uh, 
I mean, it's not like it's a unknown thing, so I guess suggesting it isn't like some big... I've Ooh. heard of it, but I know nothing about it. Well, okay, as someone who likes to make fun of me sometimes because of my vocation, I think you would also really like it. Like, Silicon Valley both rebels in and takes the piss out of the tech industry. And it's really- I only make fun of you because you can't make a death ray, and what's the point of being an engineer who can't make a death ray? Fair enough. But, uh, yeah, Silicon Valley is great. Uh, I actually started watching it mostly just because Kamali Nanjian is a common guest on Harmontown, and he's hilarious on Harmontown, so I was like, I'll go watch this show that he's in, and yeah, it's it's really good. <laughs> I may have to give that a watch. I've heard of it, but didn't really know anything about it. It is cringe humor, and I hate cringe humor. Like, I'm very much, like, I walk out of the room, and I still love this. Like, I can tell you mm. right now, you will love Guilfoyle. Guilfoyle is a... Uh, like a Satanist anarchist a-hole. Not saying that you are those, but I'm saying that he's the kind oh, of character. Oh, I'm an a-hole. Hilarious. So, uh, anyway, as for other suggestions, something a little less, well, I guess maybe it's not less known, it's just less known among my groups of people, is uh, the Old Kingdom trilogy, which, if we do a uh, an episode on books, I will go into in more length. But it's by, uh, is it Garth Nix? I want to say it's Garth Nix. But, anyway, it's um, Sabriel, Lyriel, and Aborson. It's a fantasy book, so if you know, yeah, you, you finished your Game of Thrones and you're looking for some new fantasy series to read, it's really good. Oh, speaking of Game of Thrones, I just finished A Clash of Kings last week and started Storm of Swords. So actually going and reading the books. And, and reading uh, the books helps a lot with uh, enjoying the show. Well, uh, ten, ten second review. First book was boring. Second book was amazing. So yeah, I'm gonna share a controversial opinion. Um, the show is better. We can talk about that at length another time. But I'm just stating a controversial opinion because, I mean, I've already stated I don't like Dark Souls. I've stated Batman sucks. And now I'm saying that uh, the TV show is better than the book. It's only a matter of time before you're hosting this podcast by yourself. (laughs) Well, are you going to get murdered in your sleep? (laughs) I don't know if it's going to be a combination of battering, crushed by the mountain, or whatever you weirdos like Dark Souls are into. Making me play Dark Souls eternally, that would kill me. <laughs> anyway, but to, to back up a bit, um, and I'll talk about... We'll, t- we'll have a Game of Thrones topic. Oh, yeah. But we'll definitely... The, I love Game of Thrones. Well, the Old Kingdom trilogy, for anyone who likes fantasy books and hasn't heard of it, uh, it's good stuff. Okay. So that has been this week's episode. Thank you for listening. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Also, go ahead and leave us a comment down below if there's something you'd like to hear us talk about in a future episode. As always, this has been Lord Commander Ulrich. And his shield brother, Axel Wright. Be sure to tune in the next time, and stay honorable.